0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr. Daniel Halliday. He's a political philosopher at the University of Melbourne and he wrote a book called The Inheritance of Wealth, Justice, Equality and the Right to Bequeath. Well, I'm Gillian Triggs and you're listening to Amy Mullins on Uncommon Sense. Yes, this is Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple RFM with me, Amy Mullins, and that was Gillian Triggs, one of our guests a couple of weeks ago. And I have with me in the studio to talk about, well similar topics is Dr. Dan Halliday and he is a political philosopher at the University of Melbourne and he's written a book called The Inheritance of Wealth, Justice, Equality and the Right to Bequeath and it's out through Oxford University Press and he joins me now. Hi Dan.
1: Hi, Amy. Great to be here.
0: It's great to have you. Um, I was particularly struck by the front cover of your book, which is very alluring in and of itself. I wonder, what is the story behind that painting?
1: Well, that's a painting uh, called Lady Agnew of Loch Nore um, by the artist John Singer Sargent, who's a a fairly well-known artist. And I remember seeing the painting years ago before I wrote this book. I just quite liked it. I saw it in the National Gallery of Scotland and then when the time came to choose a cover for the book I thought what kind of picture it's difficult to think of a picture that really conveys something about inherited wealth and the Mm. best thing I could come up with was well a picture of an aristocrat who of course has inherited a lot of wealth uh, or, or was married into a family that inherits a lot of wealth and that was, you know, that, that, re- that reminded me of the picture and I asked a publisher t- to get hold of it and then, then they did. So that was great.
0: It is excellent. It's kind of, it kind of depicts the idleness of the wealthy, <laughs> the supposed idleness of yeah. the wealthy um, in, I guess, England in the 19th century.
1: Yeah, or indeed Scotland in, in the case mm. of this lady. But um, yes, um, and that's, that's a good segue really to where the, the origins of the debate on, on inherited wealth and justice uh, really get going. I mean... Political philosophy has been around, you know, since ancient times, but only really began to grapple with questions of economic justice and taxation round about the, you know, round about the late 18th century, also in Scotland, when you got the rise of, you know, secular humanist thinking, right? People started to approach approach questions of morality and justice, you know, independently of what, you know, what the Pope said or, or, or what <laughs> yeah. the scripture said. Um, and that was a thing in Scotland. And of course, at the time, uh, you had... You had conditions of, of feudalism or, or an approximation thereof. Industrial Revolution hadn't got going yet. And so, in the 18th century, the only way to really get ahead, the only way to really be wealthy, was to own land. And you only owned land. You can't make more land, right? So, you're only going to own it if your parents bequeath it to you, right? If it gets transferred to you, or if you marry into the right kind of family. And, some listeners might be familiar with this from reading some of the novels based on this time, like Pride and Prejudice, right? And you've got this, this wealthy family, but because, because inheritance is so important and because all the, all the children are girls, women, they're not going to inherit unless they, you know, marry Mr. Darcy. <laughs> there's, no, there's no other way to get to get wealthy. And, of course, philosophers at the time, people like Adam Smith, for example, started to argue, well, look, this is no way to arrange things. This is hardly just... I mean, why, why should your prospects depend on your circumstances of birth or, or, or marriage? Um, and they were very concerned to argue that, you know, on top of the whole, the whole gender thing about the laws requiring that the estate goes to the eldest male heir, there was a the concern that, look, almost all of the population are shut out of of wealth. Right? And you've got these, la- these landlords and these peasants. And, you know, the peasants don't own the land. And Adam Smith and, and others argued that, look, we've really got to break up this this concentration of inherited wealth in, in the aristocracy and give everyone else a chance. And that's mm-hmm. that's really where the debate in favour of restricting inheritance, uh, that's how it got going.
0: Yeah. And as you've said in the book, there's less incentive for those who are poor and don't own land to be contributing to the productivity of the land and the value of the land, because you're really increasing the value for the person who owns it.
1: That's right. In the old days, in the feudal days, if you were a peasant working the land, you didn't own the output of your work. That The, the the feudal landlord owned it. And so if you were going to produce more output, that just meant more money to Mr. Darcy or to Mm. the landlord. And so, yes, Smith argued that, but if you own the land, all of a sudden you've got an incentive to be more productive and there'll be more food, right? People won't starve anymore. I mean, the feudal era was very unproductive.
0: Mm. People
1: didn't, there were famines, there, there was great poverty outside of the aristocracy.
0: And there's something in political philosophy which... Um, is quite interesting to me when I heard this, is that there's kind of something like a state of nature, an, a concept where, you know, at the at the beginning of time, um, land is really available to everyone and it's not privately owned necessarily. It, that everyone should have a free game at this kind of the resources that mm. the earth can provide and now we've um, you know since developed things like feudalism, the aristocracy, the industrial revolution and this concept of private property and owning something which no one else can have access to that it's that it is yours and that you can um, not only yourself maintain access to it but make sure that your relatives or um, you know people who follow you will also have similar level of exclusivity of that property. I mean what is um, where did that kind of original concept come from and how have we gotten so far from that concept?
1: Well, the state of nature, yeah. Mm. So in political philosophy, there's a long tradition of, well, if we're going to try and justify the state, the government, right, and, and a system in which there are these laws that us and bosses around that you know, sometimes we don't like, mm. um, we want to compare the state with, well, the absence of government. And that is the state of nature. The state of nature, is, depending on how you understand it, is a kind of free-for-all where people can just do what they like. And of course, in a free-for-all, we don't do so well. And that's why... That, that's how philosophers first started to justify coercive government. And private property uh, quite quickly comes into the story, right? Because if, if you've got a free-for-all, people are just going to... They're not going to conserve things. They're going to waste things. They're going to consume natural resources before someone else grabs them. Mm. Private property gives people the assurance. Like if you own a field, right? If you own the field and you've got a property right in it, that gives you the, the assurance that, you know, if someone comes along and tries to grab what's in the field, you can call the police, um, get rid of them. Uh, and when the field finally you know yields some crops, it, they get your crops to sell and that, that gives you the incentive to take care of things and as you said, exclude others from getting involved. And then there's this deep philosophical question which is still with us now about well, what exactly is property right? Now yeah, it's central to it is this right to exclude or this, this sort of privileged relationship that the owner has with a thing. Right. And if I own a house or a field or whatever, I'm allowed to you know, exclude other people from accessing it. But you know, what else can or can't I do with it? Okay. And we have laws now whereby you can't paint you know, you offensive symbols on the outside of your house and things like that. And you might want to say, well, it's my house. I can do what I want. But there are all sorts of examples where we want to say, well, hang on a minute, ownership doesn't go that far. And whether you can transfer what you own to someone else is one of these kinds of grey areas. Right? It's, Yeah, it might be important to give people property rights so that they use assets like like fields and other things to contribute to production, but it's not clear whether the right to bequeath that wealth or, or give it away to someone else is essential to uh, to that function. And so, that's another way of, of getting out the problem of inheritance. Mm. It's, it's a sort of grey area in our thinking about property rights.
0: And um, let's head back to a bit of the start of some of the early political philosophy um explorations of inheritance Mm. because they are quite piecemeal and Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily just solely focused on inheritance but you draw out some of the relevant um, aspects from quite a few, a handful at least, um, of philosophers such as John Locke, Adam Mm. Smith. Um, I found one really interesting one, William Godwin, that Mm. you put in there which I thought was quite a fascinating idea um, of his, his concept of well-being. Could you talk a little bit about some of the kind of bits that you picked out that you found particularly interesting from these earlier uh, philosophers, the kind of pre-industrial revolution um, philosophers.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So the really important distinction in the history of political philosophy where where economic justice is concerned, which includes inheritance, is the distinction between you might call the pre-industrial thinkers, right? Like Adam Smith, John Locke, Thomas Paine, and the thinkers who came along after the Industrial Revolution had got going. And then and you got John Stuart Mill, Karl Marx, uh, to some extent, William Godwin. And the importance of this, of this distinction is that, well, in the pre-industrial phase, as, as we've said, either you owned land and you were rich or you didn't own land and you were poor. But the Industrial Revolution created all these other opportunities. Right? You could get rich by having ideas and manufacturing something based on them. And, you know, I tell my students now, you know, do you do you really want to own land? Is it really crucial to your success? Well, no, it's not. There's all sorts of other things you could do with your life and become prosperous, right? We're not, we're not in the Mr. Darcy era anymore. And this greatly complicated discussions of inheritance, right? In the pre-industrial phase, the thought is, oh, look, you know, land's the thing, let's just make sure it spreads around. Post-industrial, well, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And um, if you're going to create some new wealth through having ideas and having property rights in those ideas... People like Mill, for example, argued that, well, you know, to really get this going, we want to give people some right to pass on what they've produced, otherwise, he thought, they're not going to be as productive. And so inheritance became this kind of, this kind of boner contention, right, in, in, in the moral foundations of market society. You want to incentivize people to produce, but you also want to have competition. You want, And post-industrial thinkers were quite conscious of the, of the need to have a kind of level playing field when it came to people's opportunities to be productive. And inheritance, yeah, incentivizes production in the productive person. But, you know, it's a double-edged sword because those who inherit have got a head start or they might be lazy. And there's nothing particularly valuable about that. Godwin, uh, he had a very interesting take on it. I mean, mm. his, his, his line of thought was that, look, what the good life, Godwin thought, if you're a human being, you're only really flourishing if you spend some of your time working and some of your time at leisure. And the problem that Godwin had with early 19th century society is that, well, no one does both. <laughs> you know, people are either working the whole time in the factories and down the mines and they've got no time off or they're, they're still aristocrats and they're doing nothing at all. So, so he thought you had to tax inheritance so that everyone, everyone, everyone had to do a bit of work, but also there was a way of spreading wealth around so that people got a bit of a rest.
0: It seems well. fair to me. Perhaps yeah. we could be applying that a bit more in this day and age too.
1: Perhaps, yeah think yeah. we're
0: lacking leisure that's my view anyway now let's talk about um i mean john Stuart mill he was one of the early male feminists so mm. he's one of my favorite was yeah um because he really did not only put forward uh feminist views in his philosophy but he lived by them as well he which did. is kind of rare um sometimes that you see people living by their values uh but he probably developed you know in a bit more detail this kind of his views on inheritance compared to those um, previous four philosophers that Mm. you look at um and uh, and i think that his particular um i guess views are quite interesting uh and i just kind of want to draw out a little bit more about what john Stuart mill um put forward because that might inform our future discussion Mm. of um this particular man eugenio rignano
1: yes yes yeah, so, so Mill was the first theorist to really propose uh, what we now know as progressive taxation on inheritance. I should say Thomas Paine had, had something of a prototype of that view, although in a, in a pre-industrial guise. But Mill was the first to realise, or the first to propose, that, look, a little bit of inheritance is probably a good thing, um, but the problem is that not everyone gets it. <laughs> and the problem is that some people get loads and some people get nothing. And so he argued that, look, we've got to put an upper limit on how much people can inherit. Uh, a, a cap on, on receipt of inheritance. Um, and, and we want to tax inheritance relatively heavily. Uh, and by the way, Mill was in much more in favour of an inheritance tax than, say, an income tax. Nowadays, we take income tax for granted. It's been with us for a long time. And, and we all pay it. Right? It's quite a significant tax. But of course, in the 19th century, it wasn't really done because they didn't have the technology to, to track people's incomes. Um, so Mill Mill was very much in favour of redistributive taxation, but not as we now know it. <laughs> um, and so Mill was the first to really develop these proposals, but as I said, he did, re- he did believe that, look, the, the tricky thing here is that if people inherit, they, they don't have any incentive to, you know, to, to carry on the productive activities that those may have engaged in who bequeathed to them. And he, he sort of left the problem there. And this, this is in the sort of mid to late 19th century. Um, and then you've, got, then you've got this Italian, uh, Eugenio Rignano, um, and and he, took, he took Mill very seriously, uh, but, but thought you could solve the problem, right? solve this double-edged sword problem by not just taxing inheritance according to its size. I mean, we typically think of an inheritance tax like an income tax. The more you inherit, the more you pay. And that's how Mill thought of it. Yeah? Now, Rignano thought, well, here's the thing. We, we don't just tax inheritance according to its size, but according to its age. And what he meant here was that if you produce wealth newly... Right. If you produce wealth from scratch, you can pass it on at a lower rate of taxation, perhaps zero taxation, than if you're merely passing on what you inherited from your parents or, 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 or your family members. And so you tax inheritance more, so to speak, on the second bounce, on, on the second time it gets passed down. And of course, the, the important background observation here is that most a lot of inheritance isn't newly produced wealth it's, it's bouncing down I mean there's people in in older societies like like England um, or I should say societies that have had markets and property for longer they've got inherited fortunes going back centuries you know, going back a really long time uh, and, and that's a real thing of inheritance if you don't restrict it it'll just keep bouncing down um, of course some families will, will destroy their wealth but a lot a lot won't so Rignano thought that's where that's where the action is we've got a tax inheritance that comes from inheritance And he thought that solves the incentive problem because that means if you ever receive inheritance and you want to pass it on to your kids, you've got to add to it. You've got to produce some more wealth on top of what you've received because what you've received can't go on can't be passed on
0: mm. it is really interesting to see that someone um, working in the well the 1920s was when this particular mm. work was translated yeah. it's called the social significance of death duties and uh, he was born in 1817 in Italy mm. that someone like this could come up with such a fascinating and innovative idea because, I mean, we're currently doing something that is quite blunt, which is, you know, working off that model of um, size of wealth mm. and not necessarily age of wealth. And this is kind of the crux of your book.
1: Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I should say, you know, Rignano was one of a number of scholars at the time who were playing around with these kinds of ideas. He, he got the most attention uh, probably because his views were the most sophisticated. But, but at the time, I mean, after the First World War. European governments are under this pressure to, you know, how are we going to pay for this this war we've just four? And the, as I said, the income tax wasn't 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 so entrenched at that time. Um, so yes, uh, and, I, and I might add, Wignano he was a sort of Marxist, a sort of reformed Marxist, and that is to say he believed that the state should eventually take control of capital. Capital should be nationalised, but he was. You know, give, given how how revolutions had proceeded in his lifetime, he was very wary of wealth civil wars, and he thought, "Oh, the inheritance tax is a peaceful way to get wealth away from the super wealthy and to the state." Right? Mm. Um, no one needs to get killed. There's no violence, um, and that's that's a sort of extra layer to his view. He believed that third generation inheritance should be taxed at 100. percent Eventually all inheritance uh, gets confiscated. Now, that's a much more controversial view. It's probably not something that Mill would have approved of.
0: Mm. Mill- and he certainly did say that this is a draft or a first iteration did, and yeah. needs to be worked on yeah. and, and, you know, changed to be politically palatable. Mm, yeah, yeah could we talk about the example that you give because I think it'll help highlight his particular model that he was proposing and I guess where it can be tweaked and changed Mm and um, also where its flaws are Mm -hmm. because you talk about um, Wedgwood who put together quite a strong critique, a convincing critique of Mm -hmm. parts of this theory or or proposed um, tax plan and you talk about having um, $10 million Mm -hmm. and the the levels or stages of... um, Taxation that would occur on the wealth that you've inherited, but also then the wealth that you've created. Mm. Could you, I guess, give us that example so that we can kind of understand how it would work?
1: Yep. So let's say, so according to, the, to how Rignano described his scheme, right, if you've inherited 10 million and you want to pass on any wealth to your kids, um, that 10 million is going to get taxed. Um, if you can expand, if you can add to that 10 million, if you can create another 2 million, that 2 million might... If you want to pass 12 million onto your kids, that 2 million will be taxed uh, perhaps at zero rate, but the remaining 10 that you want to pass on will be taxed at a much higher rate. And let's say of that 10 you received from your parents, they received another 5 from their parents, that one, that might get taxed at 100%. Right. So the idea is for any inheritance that anyone receives... The total amount you you break it into fractions that represent a the newly produced wealth, b the wealth that got inherited once already, and c if if it applies wealth that has been inherited more than once already. And you know it sounds simple. It sounds simple that <laughs> um, yeah. like you can say oh, this bit of the fortune's old, this bit of the fortune's new. Um, but so Josiah Wedgwood, who, who was of the, the the famous pottery family. Um, and in fact, was had received a good. deal the, the irony here is that he'd received a good deal of inheritance himself, but he was sceptical about the justice of it all. Wedgwood said, "Oh look, hang on a minute. How are you really going to work out when someone inherits? How are you really going to work out how what what part of the money is old and what part of the money is new? Now, of course, you can say that. Oh, you're inheriting from someone. You're inheriting twelve million from someone who inherited ten million. But look, the extra two million, they might have put." That might just be the interest on, on the 10 million they inherited right so the distinction between receiving wealth and then producing more wealth those two activities are independent of each other mm. and you know, it's actually quite intuitive if you inherit a whole load of money in today's world or any point in history really it's a lot easier for you to increase the wealth than if you're really starting from scratch and that was one of regwood's you know, complications Mm. Uh, Yeah.
0: And it makes me think about, I mean, current situations where, um, for example, we're talking about inheritance and often um, you do inherit most of the money that you get from your parents upon their death, but you can still receive gifts or have money put into trusts while they're still alive, while you're still here with them. Mm -hmm. So, there are ways that one can inherit money or have a safety net, an economic safety net without yet inheriting the full fortune. Um, But- You know, this Wedgwood talks about um, and you, you know, reiterate that uh, an entrepreneur can take bigger risks and invest more in their education than someone who will not inherit anything or doesn't have certainty Mm -hmm. as to what they will inherit. And that certainly changes. It's something that's quite, um, it's hard to measure, but it's kind of a mindset that those who uh, are wealthy, their parents are wealthy, their parents' parents have been wealthy, have, and perhaps they don't even realise they have that compared to others who are constantly thinking, will I still have this job? Um, Can I actually go out and try to start this business without a salary? Um, you know, I might need to work in a a regular job before I can go out and branch off on my own. I mean, a lot of um, those in the current situation would have some kind of mental safety net that they know that if they go out and take a big risk, if they Mm -hmm. fall, it's okay because they've got their parents Mm -hmm. or their grandparents' wealth to prop them back up again.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And um, the the broader point here has to do with what social scientists call uh, non-financial capital. That's a fancy way for referring to the way in which wealth attracts other kinds of advantages that are not themselves wealth. So things like who you know, how you behave. Um, If you come from a wealthy family, you're just going to be part of a network of people who can give you certain kinds of favours that don't don't have a monetary value, but you're not likely to be part of that network if you're from a poor background. Mm -hmm. And indeed, part of what's important about inheritance, I think, and argue in the book, is that wealth has this capacity to slowly but surely, um, equip it, its bearers with these other advantages. Um, now, on the one hand, this, I think, tells us that, look, reminds us that we shouldn't think that inheritance is a bad thing per se, right? There's nothing wrong with everyone getting a little bit of, you know, access to good networks, um, access to you know, certain ways of behaving that might help in the world. And, you know, we don't have to, we don't want to destroy this necessarily. But it's also evidence that families that retain wealth for a long time are going to build up privilege, So I talk about the social segregation or the economic segregation in the book. One thing that Rignano didn't talk about, but which the age of a fortune is is quite morally uh, connected to, is is the building up and maintenance of privilege. And you look at societies where there's been inheritance for a long time um, and there hasn't been a revolution. So societies like Britain and and Japan, they're they're quite hierarchical societies. They have a lot of privilege in them. And we in Australia are, are heading that way slowly but surely, because we're not taxing inheritance. So there's this whole egalitarian justification for something like a Rignano scheme, which Rignano didn't talk about. And and Mill Mill was an egalitarian, as you've said, he was an egalitarian of sorts. Um, But really, the, the, the case for restricting inheritance, not destroying inheritance, but the case for really trying to crack down on large dynastic wealth, I think is really grounded, not so much in incentives, although that's interesting, it's grounded more in... The reluctance we should have to to tolerate um, substantial privilege concentrated Mm -hmm. into small parts of society and and maintained really just through the flow of wealth rather than anything more worthy than that.
0: Yes, it seems like it can passively happen without you even noticing.
1: I think that's right. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. and perhaps that's why we're intuitively quite averse to inheritance tax. We don't really realise that in the long run it has these effects. Right? We're used to thinking of inheritance in the kind of short term, like someone gets some money, helps them buy a house, helps them out in life. That looks great, but if you, the, the long run cumulative, aggregative effects have a different kind of um, aspect to them. Hmm. I should say this doesn't get you past the kind of objections that that Wedgwood made and that others might make to a Rignano scheme. Is actually it doesn't make this doesn't make it any easier to design a tax scheme that can track the age of a fortune and not just its size those those problems coming up with a different justification for the whole thing doesn't actually make it easier to operationalize
0: mm, that is really difficult mm. yeah and also as um you highlight in the book that the value of of a certain asset or inheritance can change at any given point as well so you know that something can appreciate or depreciate absolutely
1: yeah one of the, one of the standard objections to to inheritance taxes and any kind of wealth tax is that, look, you know, you're trying to tax an asset and you don't know its monetary value, all right? Or if you do know its monetary value, you're asking people to pay when they haven't got the money. So, you know, the advantage of income tax, consumption tax is the money's already moving around and you know how much it is and and you can can take a bit of it. Now, taxing land or houses, um, you don't really know what they're worth. And if you you go to some homeowners and say, oh, you've got to pay 10% of the value of your house, they might not have the cash. They might have to sell the house in order to release the cash. Mm. And that carries over somewhat to inheritance. If you're inheriting land, homes, or just, you know, bits and pieces, um, the tax might, you know, might force you to sell this asset that is quite important to the family in order to, to cough up the money. And that, that that's a problem. Although you can get around that problem somewhat by, you know, not taxing, having inheritance only kicking above a relatively high threshold. Um Yeah.
0: Yeah, and let's pick up on what you mentioned before about um, privilege because uh, you write in one of your chapters about segregation Mm -hmm. and how segregation of any sort makes members of different groups increasingly ignorant about the realities of each other's experiences and situations. Mm -hmm. I find that really poignant because oh, yeah. I see that operating a lot.
1: Absolutely. And there's there's heaps of evidence. You don't have to talk about inheritance to see the evidence for this. The evidence mm. is in some ways more apparent uh, when you talk about things like um demog- other demographic differences than than social class like race or or religion and so on and you know to put it bluntly islamophobia is going to be less common uh, among people who who grew up around muslim kids. Um, like I did. I mean, just to, to give you an anecdote, I remember when, so I'm from London, uh, London's a very multiracial place. Uh, I went to, went to a school with, you know, kids from Pakistan, India, the Caribbean, Africa. And I remember London's now got a Muslim mayor uh, Sadiq Khan, who, who's from London, and I remember when he was he was a candidate, and, and the prime minister at the time, David Cameron, who, who who's not <laughs> didn't didn't go to a multiracial school in South London, went to Eton College, where, where <laughs> Prince William, Prince Harry went. Um, I remember him getting up in Parliament and, and, and suggesting that Sadiq Khan had all these contacts with Islamic terrorists and uh, ISIS and and, and and the rest of it, and I remember thinking, hang on a minute, this
0: you,
1: the guys I went to school, they weren't ISIS material. You know, they they, they they weren't like that. But of course, a large part of the British, and, and indeed, I think most Londoners have the same view, and Sadiq Khan won the election. But, um, you know, a lot of the British electorate from out in the countryside, for example, they, they don't have, they don't, they haven't grown up in an integrated environment and they have these stereotypes, they have these suspicions. and And that's a great injustice. I was very upset with the Prime Minister for saying these things. Um, but that, that is what happens. When people are cut off from each other, whether it's religion, ethnicity or, or social class, they're going to rely on stereotypes about each other and they're going to be more susceptible to believe in the kind of negative press, the negative things that get said about other groups. Mm. And it's, it's a real problem of our times. I dare, say, I dare say the kind of segregation you get from an inheritance is maybe not even as morally serious as the kind of segregation that we see. Uh, in, in Well, particularly in places like the United States where racial, uh, you've got ghettoization and, and real problems with race in the United States. I dare say that's worse, but there are parallels.
0: Mm. And one of the, uh, the things that I found particularly interesting that Elizabeth Anderson um, spoke about or has written about, and I'm sure many others, is this related topic of relational equality. Mm. And could you just share or explain that concept? And I mean... I mean, it is quite relevant to this idea of segregation.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, Liz Anderson is one of the one of the one of the best egalitarian philosophers currently currently working, and has had a big influence on me in in, in this book. Although she's worked mainly on racial segregation. So, equality. What do we mean by equality? Well, there are two broad senses of equality. There's a sort of quantitative material sense, which is who's got what, right? Inequality of wealth, inequality of income. Uh, that that that's about the distribution of some tangible thing. And then you've got relational equality, which is more to do with how people treat each other. Okay, so take apartheid in South Africa. Um, Yes, there was a lot of material inequality, right? That the whites had all the wealth and the blacks had very little, the non-whites had very little. But there was also this kind of hierarchical mode of interaction, right? White people can't marry black people. They can't use the same public toilets, etc. And that's inequality. That's hierarchy. But it's not about the distribution of stuff, it's not best represented by the, you know, the distribution of toilet seats or anything like that. That's not how we really want to talk about it. And philosophers continue to be in, in this deep debate about, well, which of the things do we really care about? If you're an egalitarian and you want equality, do you, do you want tangible equality or do you want relational equality? Well, really you want both, but one's important because it derives its importance from the other. So people like Anderson believe that, look, wealth inequalities are bad or unjust, when they start to maintain these more relational inequalities, which are more important, so small inequalities of wealth or income might not do that okay small inequalities of of, of income may not undermine uh, integrated society right and they may just reflect perfectly innocent differences in life choices and how hard you work and that kind of thing. Um, And so if you're a relational egalitarian, you're allowed to tolerate a bit of material inequality so long as you don't get segregation and hierarchy and these less tangible things, which, although they're harder to measure, economists don't tend to talk about them so much, they're arguably more important. And John Stuart Mill, I think, was really a relational egalitarian. Because he talks about, as you said, he talks about gender. He talks about the injustice of women not being allowed to own property. And as a result, women are kind of brought up to behave in a certain way and to be kind of meek and submissive and just... Your job as a woman, like in Pride and Prejudice, is to attract a good wealthy husband. That's not really about the distribution of tangible things. right? It's about hierarchy and social position, although it is causally related to the distribution of wealth. Mm. But really it's the hierarchy you care about.
0: And I think it's something that is important is that having a relational equality or the presence of that kind of equality is about social interactions and about respect, mutual respect and understanding and some form of empathy.
1: That's the idea, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you get people cut off from each other, they're not going to empathise with each other. Okay. If people grow up in very different environments from other demographics, it's a real, it's an unfortunate thing. But it's a fact about human psychology that if you're not, if you don't see someone else's suffering or someone else's hardship up close and personal, you don't appreciate it as much. Plenty of evidence for this. You look at the way charities campaign. They're not going to campaign by giving you a bunch of quantitative information about who's who's starving. They'll give you a story about, you know, some, some young boy and there'll be a picture of him and there'll be a story about he lost his parents in the war and, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we're segregated, when we only hang around and when we only grow up around members of a, a fairly narrow demographic, we, we, we lose the ability to empathise with, with members of other demographics. And so the worry about inheritance is it has that effect, right? It has this, this gradual segregating effect whereby, you know, wealthy, wealthy people live apart from less wealthy people. And, you know, this is really about dynastic inequality, dynastic material inequality, right? If you've got inequality, that results from people having grown up alongside each other, but some have just got richer later in life. That might be less of a problem, you know? But it's when people are born into wealthy privileged groups and never come out of them, that you've really got more of a hierarchy as a result.
0: Yes, and that that privilege is continued and passed on Mm -hmm. to their children and their children and so on. Yep. Yeah, and so let's talk a bit about how this the philosophical concepts and this um, discussion of inheritance applies now to the debates that we're having or not having mm-hmm. in Australia in particular the debates are happening in the UK for mm-hmm. example where we've seen some tweaks to inheritance mm-hmm. tax um, particularly last year we saw a tweak um, in the thresholds in the UK um, first of all what is the situation in the UK and then we'll give a bit of a update on Australia?
1: Yeah, so very roughly the UK has what's called an estate tax, which is where the value of the estate is what determines the rate of taxation, right, rather than the value of each bit that people receive, okay? So in the UK, it's how much wealth the dead person has got, not, not how much they divided it among other people, right? Um, and the UK, the, the inheritance tax threshold is relatively high, right, and very relatively few people. Uh, mm. relatively few estates are liable to inheritance taxation and there are various bells and whistles so for example if you've set aside some of your estate for charity yep, um, the rest of it will get taxed at a lower rate assuming it's liable in the first place nothing wrong with that by the way I don't. one thing that we forget about is mm. so, uh, inheritance or wealth transfer doesn't always have to go to people and go to charities and then you get into a debate about well, what gets to be a charity and that kind of thing yeah. but, but that's, an, that's often forgotten so that's the situation in the UK Right? Not much inheritance taxation, but some based on the value of the estate rather than the value of the portions that people receive in australia and you know i'm surprised by the fact that people often don't realize this, especially people who aren 't old enough to remember when there was an inheritance tax but there's no inheritance tax here there's zero percent wealth transfer tax. There are some proxies like capital if you inherit a house and sell it, you might pay capital gains, but if you if you don't sell it you don't so we don't have a wealth transfer tax here and and that's that's that came about because, um, in the nineteen seventies, the the states of Australia were allowed to set their own policies about inheritance tax, and states realised that if they undercut other states, they would attract wealthy people, right? Because people want to move to a state where they can pass the wealth on, and that's what happened. One one state, I think Queensland and Tasmania were the first states to do it, and then the other states thought, oh, we're going to, you know, we're losing people we're going to have to follow suit, and there's a sort of race to the bottom, and in the end, there's just no tax. Similar to what's playing out with corporation tax and tax havens on the more global, uh, on the global side of things now. And since then, things haven't changed, Um, and we continue to rely on income tax and and things like GST. Now, one argument you can make uh, for bringing back an inheritance, or reconsidering an inheritance tax is that, look... We're not in the 1950s and 1960s anymore, okay? We don't have fast economic growth. Wages are not keeping up with the cost of living, particularly the cost of housing. In the 1960s, you could argue that, well, look, everyone, people are generally doing better. They're, they're, the wages are going, uh, going upwardly really quite nicely. And then you can make a, a case for taxing uh, wages or, or even consumption. Um, but once you've got wage stagnation, which, which we now have and which we have in, in, in countries like Britain who have had it there a bit longer, I think that there is pressure to to shift the tax base, uh, the thing that is taxed, away from people's income and people's consumption to the wealth stock, right? To the the amount of wealth that's just concentrated into a small number of families because at the end of the day, income is not going to generate sufficient tax revenue or less tax revenue than it used to. And you see the government's desperate to get people back into work because that's how it gets its revenue it's desperate to get people back into work and you've got we've got a welfare state that puts all these pressure on people to take the first job that comes along even if it's even if it's a job that a machine could probably do if not now then in a few more years so we need to we need to rethink our dependence on on work on paid labor as a tax base and if you want to get away from from the income tax well wealth taxes like inheritance taxes they're, they're perhaps the most obvious candidate, mm. perhaps along with corporation taxes.
0: Well, we are having these debates about inequality a lot more mm. and it's become something that people are quite fixated upon. We've seen a massive study by Thomas Piketty and Co mm. um, yeah. which made a big contribution to that and a lot of people were quite interested in mm. such a massive book, um, quite dense book too. And you know, this inequality issue and low wages growth isn't going to go away. No, no. And egalitarianism is, you know, and this form of egalitarianism in, this, in your book is quite compelling. I mean, how do, do you think, like, what are the conditions that are required politically to get something like an inheritance tax across the line? And I'm not even necessarily meaning as innovative or progressive as what mm. you've outlined in, in your book.
1: Right, so I think the first challenge is how do you persuade people that an inheritance tax is not the evil thing that people tend to think it is. And here's how you might do this. Now, for the recent decades, people have been fed this narrative, right, that, you know, an inheritance tax is evil because it punishes mum and dad. It punishes, you know, newly produced mum and dad have worked hard, they've saved a lot, and now they want to pass it on to you and Mm -hmm. the state's going to come and grab it. Um, Now, that narrative, as you might notice, portrays inheritance as newly produced wealth. And so the advantage of a Rignano scheme, in terms of political feasibility, is you can say to people, no, no, we're not going to tax your inheritance if indeed, if mum and dad have worked hard and built up a bit of wealth from scratch, that gets a free pass. Or or a very, you know, almost a free pass. Mm. We're only going to tax it at the second bounce. And anecdotally, when you talk to people about this, they become a bit more open um, to, to the idea of inheritance taxation when it's second generation, third generation. And of course, a lot of although most people who inherit are not inheriting second generation wealth, a lot of the wealth that does get inherited in, in concentrated into a small elite group is is actually quite old. Mm. And and so I think once you once you get people to realize that look, although it's hard to operationalize, we don't have to tax newly produced wealth, first generation inheritance, people become more open to it. The other thing is that people don't like inheritance tax because they've been again sold a narrative that it's yet another tax, right? It's, it's double taxation or it's, it's taxation on top of all the tax you've paid your whole life. But again, you can say, well, hang on, we don't have to keep all the other... T- if we can find a way to reduce the income tax, right... So that People would rather, I think, take home more pay and and pay inheritance tax than than pay high income taxes or at least the people who have to work for a living, not not, not the super wealthy. Um, So the super wealthy have got an interest actually in in maintaining this narrative that it's yet another tax, although for them it might might be the only tax. So I think if we we could find a way to get off income tax and we could find a way to lower the liability to first-generation inheritance, if we could find a way to at least get people to think of inheritance in that way... Mm the political feasibility would increase. And the fact that the narratives continue to get peddled, whereby you encourage to think it's yet another tax and it's a tax on newly produced wealth, I think suggests that the people who've got an interest in there being no inheritance tax realise that people will think differently about it if this narrative is not constantly thrown at them.
0: Mm. And do you think some of those challenges that are thrown up with the Renano scheme can be overcome eventually?
1: Mm. Well, look, um, to be honest... uh, it's impossible to design a tax scheme that doesn't have some false positives and false negatives, that doesn't get some mm-hmm. things wrong. That's true for consumption tax, for income tax, and that's why tax is complicated, because everyone's situation is different. Now, given that we have 0% tax, I think just moving to a progressive, a progressive tax of a high threshold so if we didn't tax any inheritance above uh, below $10 million, let's say, and then we just taxed it according to its size above that, that would be a great improvement. And that wouldn't hurt a lot of the people who are relying on newly produced wealth. So when Rignano scheme is kind of an ideal. It's a conceptual ideal. It would be nice if we could get to some version of it, but we would greatly we would have a more just society, I think, if we just had high threshold and then standard progressive rate. Mm. In terms of feasibility, that might be the easiest thing to implement. That would be a start. So, and that would be an improvement over the status quo.
0: Yes. And in countries like Japan, I know their rate is about 55%.
1: Yes, but the thing about countries with high rates is they often have a lot of exemptions, Mm. right? So, I don't know so much about Japan, but in in Germany, I believe uh, certainly it used to be the case that if you declared an asset as part of a family business, it didn't get taxed. So, you had this practice of people... um, (laughs) stuff that they owned they would just they would just register it as a business and it would it would pass to their kids so we have to be careful of things like that i think it's better just to have a high threshold and then not not too many exemptions above that mm. and then it's harder for people to avoid the tax we also have to be aggressive i think about things like trusts i don't talk much about trusts in the book but no, trusts, i wonder uh, about
0: that because it's huge
1: it's huge in anglo so mm. anglo commonwealth jurisdictions um the short thing to say about trust is they're a good, ideas, good idea for things like charities, right? That's really what they're there for. They're not, they're not a great thing when the beneficiaries are individual people. Um, and, you know, jurisdictions, again, Germany, uh, jurisdictions outside of the Anglo tradition, they don't take trust seriously at all. They, they don't really have them for individuals. And it's perfectly possible to do away with these things. Yeah. We don't have to have them. Yeah. I mean, people often talk about, oh, you know, people who avoid the tax because of this and that. But, you know, it's up to us. It's up to us what laws we pass and what institutions we have. And we, we, we could reduce these, these mechanisms quite mm. substantially, like other countries have done.
0: We certainly could, and just finally, Dan, um, from your personal perspective, and obviously the passion that you have for this topic, why did you look at inheritance? You know, why did you dedicate so much time, I guess, to this particular area that isn't necessarily as, um, you know, it doesn't capture the imagination of. A lot of people, mm. in an immediate sense, it will through this book. But why did you really focus on on this?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to emphasise that you know I'm quite privileged myself. I was given mm. a, a permanent academic appointment at Melbourne University, and I'm very grateful for that. And that gave me the time to actually think. Well, what kind of book, what kind of book do I want to write now that I've got a bit of time to do so? So there was that. There's also the fact that there hasn't been a book on the moral foundations of inheritance for nearly a hundred, well, a hundred years or so. The closest book we have, I think, in, in English-speaking languages, is, is Wedgwood's back in the 1920s. Right? So it's been a long time, and I, you know, it just suited my personality. I think to, to write a book that was a bit more, wasn't trying to join an established academic conversation. Put it that way, uh, that suited me. A lot of academic books yeah. are, are replies to other academic books, and there's a kind of, there's a kind of, you know, a. a, a a developed exchange between scholars, and I didn't. I didn't really want to. Maybe it's because I'm introverted or antisocial. I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to write a book. I wanted to write a book for, but that could give people a bit of a start, especially students uh, or people outside the discipline. Mm. Um, and you know, it's always sort of something about the topic has always bothered me. I suppose as well. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That makes total sense to me, and uh, I think it's great that you've made a unique contribution because we don't really need any more um, dialogues in academia. Well, we could do with some, but potentially it'd be great to have some people heading out on their own and doing their own thing.
1: Well, it would be certainly good if we could talk a bit more about this topic and, and mm. not get so worked up about it mm. um, and be so Take dismissive. the emotion of it. out
0: of it, particularly.
1: Yeah. um, And as i said, I think that's about the first thing to do is to to recast the narratives and and realise that that this problem has been presented to us in a certain kind of way that suits certain interests and probably uh, isn't very accurate.
0: Mm. And that's kind of the role of philosophy in a range of things. So thank you, Dan, for coming in and talking to us about it.
1: Real pleasure, Amy. Thanks very much
0: that was Dr. Dan Halliday. He is a political philosopher at the University of Melbourne. He also has a show on ABC called Ethics Matters. And he's written a book called The Inheritance of Wealth, Justice, Equality and the Right to Bequeath. And it's out through Oxford University Press. And as he said, people, anyone can pick it up. It is accessible and it's definitely not above anyone's head. So I highly recommend taking it out of the library or buying it and having a read It's really great. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with me, Amy Mullins. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.